G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could have popped to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and we really appreciate if you could spend a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. I know there's a, a couple of reviews uh, out there that I haven't sort of commented on. Um, I'll do that uh, I'll do that next week. So, uh, so today, joining Brian, Brian and myself in the studio, Brian was so organized he was here and it was great is is uh is andy phillips so one of our lecturers here in small animal orthopedics so thank you andy for joining us you're very welcome thanks for having me and uh, and we thought we'd have a have a chat about um canine patella luxation so uh so uh, so, so a great a great uh, a great topic and something that brings me back to the the horrors of, of when I thought about orthopedic procedures. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, so I suppose I suppose that the first thing when we're talking about like canine and patella luxation is kind of like what 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 is it? What is it? So, it is slipping of the patella, which can either be the medial aspect of the stifle or the lateral aspect. More commonly, the medial aspect, and something that probably you'll see commonly in practice. So, hopefully, a relevant topic to talk about. So, most often it happens when the extensor mechanism of the stifle is malaligned, because it clearly will need to be in a straight line to to pull the stifle in extension and if anything slips off to the side then we end up with a luxating patella in a nutshell so so yeah, I, I had a, I had a look, Andy, because I, I occasionally I managed to do like a, a little bit of research, not not very often to be honest, but, but particularly on things that I have no knowledge about. But um, so it said like that for the grades of luxation, sorry, the grades of, of patella luxation. Um, so there's one, two, three, four. Correct. Right? And my and my brief understanding is so so one is it can move out but return spontaneously. Yes. So, is is that is that it, does it matter whether it's medial or lateral? Is that just the no? That's the same. So one is is easy to understand. So that is it can luxate, but normally spontaneously returns uh, when the stifle is in extension and spends almost all of the time in the patella and tracking in the trochlear groove in the correct position. So one is is okay to understand. I think four, which is the opposite extreme, is quite is okay to extend as well. So that's almost the opposite where the patella is out of the groove the whole. time time uh, and you can't physically replace it even if you straighten up the leg um, and then so in between is two and three um, and two would be classified as uh, the patella being out of the trochlear groove most of the time but it can be replaced um, normally by extending the stifle and three um, or the dog can replace it itself by extending the stifle and three the patella is out of the groove for well, almost all of the time and it's very and it's replaceable but difficult to replace manually so those are the differences and I guess radiographically we would expect to see some differences as well so we'd expect minimal uh, osseous changes with a grade one um, and then progressively increasing radiographic changes um, with grades two three and four so some subtle changes probably with grade two and maybe more obvious changes with grade three and grade four can be quite variable but can be quite stark changes can I ask Andy, when, when you have a look at these dogs, like clinically, so when they're walking, would, mm. would a grade one be the dogs that, that so like the, maybe the little fluffies that running around, they hold up their hind leg um, and they might hold it up for a few steps when they're running and then they suddenly, like, I would have like look like they yeah. manipulate it. It goes back and they're and they're fine. Yeah. Is that a little skipping lameness, mm. so called? Um, it, it could be a grade one. I'd say more commonly would see grade twos uh, or threes doing that. So um, 
often grade ones have no clinical signs. Uh, so uh, sometimes they're an incidental finding at vaccinations or they, they may have a skipping lameness as well, but, but definitely not always. Uh, grade four, so the very high grade ones, they will often have a, a really odd gait abnormality. So they almost, uh, hard to characterise, almost like sort of walking in a crab-like fashion is the way the textbooks describe it. But more often you look at the dog and think that looks a bit weird. So, um, and that might be why. And, and when we talk, because we, as we uh, said, said before that, or when the mics were closed, that there's a diff, there's sort of like three different entities of the disease, like a small dog, big dog, and hmm. medial, lateral, lateral, patellar relaxation. See, do they, uh, when you see them clinically in large dogs, is it a more obvious? gait abnormality is it is it is it the same or is it easier to pick up in small breed dogs i think it's probably easier to pick up in smaller breed dogs because mainly because it's more on your radar and i think more of them would have that skipping classical skipping lameness whereas i think the larger breed dogs sometimes can be a bit harder to pick up with the larger breed dogs it's often 20 percent are associated with cruciate disease as well so um, that can complicate matters further and we suspect that there might be a link in that if they've got patella luxation then the forces through the stifle are abnormal and we get overloading of the cruciate so uh, maybe there's a, a component of one leading to the other but that at the minute is still a theory so i think that also complicates things with the larger breed dogs um, so yes yeah i think you're right there's often three clinical entities so medial patella luxation little dog which is far and away the most common and then big dogs with medial patellar luxation and uh, lateral patellar luxation which often is also big dogs as well and that could be a component of what we call bidirectional patellar luxation so where it can luxate either medially or laterally so. is there a, is this a genetic component do we do we think are, are there a, a dogs sort of born um with, with this or can it be like developmental as yeah well? we'd call it developmental so that the dogs have don't have patellar luxation when they're born um, but they probably have the predisposing factors so I guess those predisposing factors are, are going to be hereditary so um, and those there's a whole raft of them so when I think about those I sort of in my mind envisaging like a cranial cord or radiograph of uh, a whole pelvic limb and so the ones that you would think about would be um coxivara so the femoral neck being not as angled more down so more ventrally and then we have that sort of the sort of sigmoid shape to the femur and the um the tibia which gives you genuvarum so inwardly bowing knees um, and then you have a smaller femoral condyle on the medial aspect a shallow trochlear groove and you can have tibial changes as well so either a torsional change in the tibia or just a um the the tibial tuberosity itself where the patellar ligament inserts is off-centered as well so that there's malalignment so i guess all of those factors are going to be the predisposing things um for a, a case and those are the bits that are I think a hereditary, um, but yes, a developmental disease technically. So, and so, and so, when you're examining these guys, how how do you how do you know whether surgery is going to be beneficial or, or yeah. indeed the the right thing to to do? I think that's quite a I think that's quite a hard question to answer, and it's actually one of the things I think we struggle to give a really good answer for. There are some cases that are really clear cut. So I think a grade one that's got um, no clinical signs or only very intermittent lameness um, and no pain on examination, then um, that's not a surgical candidate. So we manage that conservatively just with monitoring. 
I think the only caveat to that, I would say, is sometimes those those little grade ones, the patella can can ride up onto the trochlear groove, and even though it's not overtly luxating over the ridge, if it rubs on the ridge, you can get wear and erosions under the patella, so that can be painful. And so one of the things you can do in your clinical exam is check for retro patella pain, so just to literally press cordially on the patella and, and see if that's uncomfortable. So that might be a situation where you could consider surgery, but typically the grade ones are, are not surgical. Um, the grade fours, that's more straightforward as well. That's they're normally normally surgical. Um, grade threes are normally associated with clinical signs as well, so they're most often surgical. So typically, we'd operate on a grade three and four as long as they had clinical signs. Uh, and then the grade twos are the ones that are really um, the hard ones to try and work out. And that we would go on a combination of um, severity of radiographic changes, just how affected the dog is clinically and whether it's painful on manipulation of the uh, of the stifle so and yeah those ones are tricky and there's a bit of judgment to be made with those and difference of opinion sometimes also so do, do you think yeah. it matters whether they're small dogs or big dogs with those, with those sort of gray area grades uh, no not really i think it's more just how affected they are is the biggest thing for me is if they're if they're even if it's a low, relatively low-grade patella luxation, but the dog's clinically affected by it, then I think then that's a good indication to to operate. So, okay. yeah. Um, and uh, and see the see what, what sort of what sort of surgeries can you can you do with these? Uh, with lots dogs? and lots described. It's a bit of a <laughs> in vogue area. So, um, the the traditional. I think the most important thing is to examine the dog and see exactly what conformational abnormalities each particular dog has, um, and then be guided by that. Um, and although there's a raft of things described, we typically do something very similar each time. So more often than not, we would deepen the um, the, the, the trochlear groove. Um, to, and we're aiming then for 50% of the patella to sit within the groove, basically. And there's a variety of different ways of doing that. The two most common ways uh, would be a wedge resection sulcoplasty or a, um, or a block sulcoplasty. Um, so that would be one one method. The the other important part is going to be a tibial tuberosity transposition. So this is um, you know removing or osteotomizing the very top of the tibia where the patella tendon inserts, and then you know normally you've got medial patella luxation. So lateralizing it and then securing it with a couple of K wires and a tension band to keep that in place. And those would be the mainstays of treatment. And the vast majority of cases would um, that would resolve the issues. Um, normally we augment them with some soft tissue procedures. So um, imbrication laterally, and that just means tightening up the the soft tissues of the joint capsule. And you can do that either just by removing a chunk of the joint caption and stitching it together or overlaying the tissue edges and then a medial release so where you've done your medial arthrotomy just extending that proximally and normally we just leave that open so that it removes some some tension we would here we would very rarely do just the soft tissue procedures on their own because we feel they're not very durable and where you imbricate laterally it normally stretches so um, so we, it's rare that we do that we'd normally always combine it with some sort of bone procedure normally always tibial tuberosity transposition and often the sulcoplasty as well um, so that's that's far and away the most common scenario and um, the bits that are in vogue at the moment are sort of people talking about distal femoral osteotomies and straightening up the the femur um, but i think the indications from that are uh, well i don't think there's a huge number of indications but particularly we think about that if the um 
if there's marked genuvarum, so if there's sort of really marked inward bowing of the stifle joint, and we would then very carefully measure the joint angles to see truly how how far that has gone, and then remove normally what we do what is closing wedge, so remove a, a wedge from the lateral aspect of the femur to try and straighten up the distal aspect of the femur. So that's something that I guess you may see. There's a few papers very recently about that, and some American groups are very, very keen on it. So uh, I guess maybe we'll have some more long-term outcomes from them soon, but that's something in vogue. But I think you have to be really careful with the case selection for that. So it's a bit more of an invasive procedure and, and the more traditional techniques have got lots of follow-up and we've been doing those for years very successfully. So, And is there anything to say that um, just doing a trochloroplasty or a, a, a tibial crest transposition would be a... Um, uh, would, would be all you need to do or, or you know one of those things or yeah or, or is there really not necessarily a huge amount of evidence to say that one i think it just depends is... on the individual anatomy as much as anything and that's why i think it's important you keep in mind all the different predisposing factors so that really interrogating the radiographs for those and addressing what appears to be the biggest problem for that dog um we sometimes will do to be tibial tuberosity transposition without a sulcoplasty but rarely the other way around so um, we just think there's a bit more morbidity associated with the uh, sulcoplasty so if the if the trochlear and it's really an interoperative decision if the if the trochlear is deep enough then you know we'd leave it be rather than rather than upsetting the cartilage by deepening the groove and things because you know we know we're going to hasten arth arthritic changes by doing that so yeah i suppose that's a good good point so what, what are the um what are the issues with 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 doing this procedure yeah so um so it would definitely any arthrostomy is going to cause arthritis you know regardless of why you're doing that and i think doing a sulcoplasty um it makes sense that you're upsetting the articular cartilage so i, I suspect that it's going to be more arthritis associated with that and then in terms of complications post-operatively i think the main ones we'd worry about would be um sort of either pin loosening or irritation because there's not very much in the way of soft tissues between the pins and the skin so um so actually this is probably one of the procedures we more commonly have to remove implants for once everything's healed than anything else so it's normally rare for us to remove implants but occasionally we need to take the pins out um so i guess it's another reason to be really careful with your patient selection so i, I would warn owners about 16 percent need um, you know have some sort of complication and often that's pin related um, and just being careful with that um, the TTT just that it's securely fastened if it's a very small dog sometimes that can be a very small bit of bone so you um, just have to make sure it's adequately secured and sometimes too small for a tension band wire and then you just use a pin but yeah Wow, mm -hmm. um, that's that's, uh, that's 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 pretty 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 in depth. <laughs> and and uh, and do you, do you do to if the is it likely that this will be on both uh, hind legs or, or yeah or, or or just or just one? Yeah. And if so, would you would you do the procedure on both limbs at the same time? Try not to. Um, I think whenever we're doing a, a simultaneous bilateral surgery, I think I always worry that we expose ourselves to a higher rate of complications. Um, although some some people argue that otherwise with things like tplo but um yeah we'd normally try and stage them and about 50 percent of dogs it's they're affected bilaterally i guess because the predisposing factors are hereditary so that's sort of i guess that follows they're not always as severely affected bilaterally so some you know will definitely have one worse leg and normally you'd start with that and then see how the dog gets on and once everything's healed 
Um, so, you know, seeing them back at six to eight weeks for a recheck to make sure everything's healed then provides a good opportunity to reevaluate the contralateral limb in the safe knowledge that the first side's healed properly. So. And Andy, because of this being um, more of a hereditary thing or developmental thing, is this a, normally seen when animals are quite young rather than yeah. at, a, at an older age? Yes, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. There's a few things to think about there. Yes, normally they're younger dogs, uh, but you can see them in older dogs as well, and that could either be if they've got arthritic changes that have progressed over time, or there is that suspected link with cruciate disease. So um, so actually quite a lot of the dogs we will see referred for patelluxation have patelluxation, but uh, the reason they've got worse as they got older is that their cruciate has uh, has failed them as well. And so, and so then you're faced with the difficult decision of what to tackle and often we end up tackling just the cruciate ligament but that really is a sort of a case-by-case assessment so um and i guess the other thing that's well worth thinking about in the in the young animal is that's we do see a lot of young animals and if there's if they haven't reached skeletal maturity then uh, we will often delay surgery until the physes are closed because you otherwise end up with a weak point in the middle of your ttt that's could fail you so um so that that's another common scenario that we'll see very young dogs that are, are not you know not ready for surgery and we send them away and come back and operate when they're you know when all the physes are closed the one exception to that is a very young dog which we rarely get because i guess it's not on people's radars for the very young puppies but the trochlear itself um deepens in response to retropatellar pressure so if you had a very young dog with a high-grade patella luxation, then we would be tempted to operate on that then in the hope that we could um, maybe do a TTT, for example, get the patella and the extensor mechanism in alignment and then hopefully cause some remodelling of the cartilage to form a better groove for the dog. So that might be one example, but sadly we rarely see dogs young enough to consider that and more often we're waiting for skeletal maturity before we're operating. Do you, do you think that's uh, a way that um, people might might go more like try to identify it earlier to, to treat it yeah earlier. i think that that would be that would be an interesting thing it's i think that's a you know a worldwide problem of not seeing you know seeing them not early enough to think about that and so perhaps the, doing these podcasts is a good way of educating people to be on their on the radar and even something else to check at vaccinations maybe that um you know, and maybe we can pick these things up a little bit earlier. But I don't think it's certainly when I was in practice, it wasn't on my radar for a puppy check. That's for sure. So, mm-hmm. um, so yes. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think have we have we missed out anything in particular on uh, on to talk about um, canine patella luxation? Do you think, Andy? No, oh, I think that's a pretty good summary. I think the guess the other things that the only things i would mention would be the larger breed dogs i think they're they're less common and the lateral patella luxation is less common again but a lot of the um some of the risk factors are thought to be slightly different but um the in terms of the way you manage them clinically that doesn't change very much so it's more that just to be aware and checking that you know yeah the patella can luxate laterally as well so just bear that in mind when you're examining the uh, dog with a sore stifle Mm-hmm. And, and just out of uh, uh, interest, this is completely irrelevant. But do do you get sent more referrals that are larger dogs with this problem, or or does it is actually? Um, I'd still say more smaller dogs, um, but it's probably more even than you might expect. So, and normally the larger dogs are often got a concurrent cruciate disease as well. So, yeah, yeah that's. I just would have thought that some scenario. people are 
maybe happier dealing with the, the smaller dogs and not the bigger dogs. That was my oh, possibly, my take, but possibly maybe I think not. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe my not. impression is still quite a lot get treated in general practice yeah, too. Yeah, so. absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure very successfully as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose that's uh, one one of the things. Um, you know, I suppose I had David Church on talking about certain things that maybe the uh, you know vet compass or looking at data coming from general practice would actually be mm-hmm. beneficial. We work out you know what what um, what is done and you know the the actual you know um, success rate and complications that people see because it might be a very different population than definitely than, than we have as well. I suspect it is a totally different cohort of dogs. Yeah, I could well believe that. It'd be interesting. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know you're 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 busy today, Andy, so uh, so thank you very much for your time here. We'll we'll wrap it up there today. Thank Um, you. So thanks for listening, and don't forget to hit that uh, subscribe button on your generic freebase device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great, and don't forget to tell your friends, friends or others, and we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast in your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye